to the It'll Buff Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Grachowski, CEO and founder of Five and Fly LLC. What if I told you there's no set path on separating from the Army? If you are an active duty Army officer seeking to separate from the Army in the next 18 to 12 months, here's the deal. Stay tuned. The fact of the matter is, people out there are going to tell you that there's a set path to go on, whether that's pursuing an MBA or pursuing a certain internship path. There isn't. And here's what I'm going to tell you. You can write your own path. You just need to be able to filter through the noise. This podcast is going to provide you with interviews, one-on-ones, and personal experiences that help you create an azimuth to guide you on the path of separating from the Army. This isn't going to have all the answers, but it's going to help point you in the right direction. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in. It'll buff. All right, welcome to this episode of the It'll Buff podcast. I'm your host, CEO and founder of Five and Fly, Daniel Grachowski. And today we have a very, quite frankly for, frankly for me, a very special guest. I had mentioned on the previous episode that this we were going to be talking to a retired Marine Corps colonel of 30 years. Um, and so today we have with us Keith Perry, um, and again, retired colonel in the Marine Corps. Uh, and really, he has had quite the career both in the military and now as he is in the civilian world. Um, and so I'm going to let him introduce himself. Uh, so Keith Perry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dan, thank you very much for uh, for having me on. It was great to uh, hear from Ted, and I'm, I'm so glad that he linked us up. And uh, I'm honored that you asked me to, to be on your podcast because Hopefully, uh, some of the lessons that I learned as I was making my transition, uh, like I said to you before we started recording, will resonate. Uh, the same things that happened to to me when I got out and happened to my master gunnery sergeant and my sergeant major, uh, they ran into the same problems that, quite honestly, you know, some of the junior officers and some of the some of the younger Marines ran into as well. Uh, it's almost like when uh, when I was getting out that uh, I was the first person ever to retire from the Marine Corps. And they were just trying to figure out the process. And I heard that so many times from so many of my, so many of my friends and, and colleagues that hopefully some of the things that, that I experience, I'll be able to pass along and will help some folks down the road. So I pay it forward a little bit. Um, so, yeah, uh, like you mentioned, uh, I, I uh, retired after 30 years in the Marine Corps. I started off uh, enlisted. Uh, I enlisted uh, coming out of, uh, when I was in college, and uh, you alluded to it a little bit when we were talking, uh, you had heard it on a, on a different uh, venue. But I had applied to the uh, West Point, and I applied to Annapolis, and I got accepted to Annapolis, or I got accepted to West Point, did not get accepted to Annapolis, and I knew that I wanted to go into the Marine Corps. And of course, when you're 17 or 18 years old, or however old you are when you're applying, they don't tell you about inter-service transfers and those kind of things. Oh. Um, no, they do not. So I decided that I was going to take a Navy ROTC scholarship at University of Pittsburgh. And uh, the year that I got there, they they had suspended it uh, while they revamped the, the Navy ROTC program at Carnegie Mellon. So they gave me an Army scholarship. And I uh, just couldn't <laughs> couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it for some reason. I knew I, I had my mind fixed on something. And uh, I, I stuck with that. So I, I took a little bit of hiatus from school and I enlisted in the Marine Corps, uh, went through boot camp. And that was kind of the start of my, my military career. Didn't know where I was going to take it at that point. 
but as I was uh, finishing my degree, uh, still in the reserves at that point, uh, now a sergeant, and uh, I decided I, I kind of like this. So I went through officer candidate school, did that for the, uh, the two summers down at Quantico, beautiful, beautiful Quantico, Virginia, and uh, got my commission uh, when, I, when I finished up at Pitt. And at that point, I, didn't, I still didn't know if I was going to make it a career. Uh, and just somewhere along the way, I just decided to keep going. And I think uh, 9-11 had a lot to do with that. Obviously, mm -hmm. I was a captain at that point, making a decision that I think a lot of your, uh, your peers and your friends and the audience for your, your podcast would be at. Uh, so we had a little bit of an impetus at that point. I was uh, teaching at the infantry officer course back at Quantico now as a captain, but as an instructor at the basic school and the infantry officer course. And I, uh, I decided at that point that, uh, yeah, I'm going to stick around. And after leading a number of units in combat during the, the initial crossing of the, uh, the border into Iraq in 2003, and then I went back in four, five, and six, uh, I decided that, you know, I think I had a little bit of a knack for this and uh, I was going to stick around until the, the Marine Corps wanted to get rid of me. And uh, lo and behold, you know, I finished up at the, uh, at the Pentagon and uh, as I was doing that, got accepted to uh, UT here in Austin at the Macomb School of Business. And uh, this brought me to Austin. So here I am. And that's how uh, we got a chance to meet. Yeah, that, Keith, that is just quite quite the background. And um, again, to your point, uh, as I was just listening to a little bit of your background on their venue, I was just captivated by you know, the fact that you got into West Point and, and, and we, you know, we almost shared that, uh, that alumni, uh, brotherhood, but uh, either way, we still, we still share that brother, brother in arms, um, that, that greater alumni of serving the military together. So you had mentioned, right. You were at that five-year mark. You were at, for the army, we call it the captain's career course or basic officer leader course. And, um, we, um, for us, that is generally a point where, you know, as if we were captains and, and as you alluded to, that's where we were making this decision. Do we, do we want to get out or do we want to continue to pursue this thing? Um, and obviously in, if, in five and fly, the company that, you know, puts the, puts the podcast on. And, and as, as we decide to, to you know, we go to, we go to teach at uh, our basic office leader, officer leader course or captain's career course, um, you know, again, it, it ties into to making that decision of, okay. And they, and they kind of capture, at least for me, when I went back to captain's career course and I, I quite frankly, I had made my decision up at really that four year mark. And I said, okay, I don't, you know, I want to try and stay at Fort Hood and start interning or start networking to land jobs down the road. And I knew I wanted to to get out of the military and, and pursue a civilian career. So I had this mentality of like, I want to stay at, you know, Fort Hood. And then of course they sent me up there and then they, they sent you to, to Catherine's career course. And, and it was like, oh man, I, we got out of class at two o'clock in the afternoon. My wife didn't want to go back to the the lovely uh, post of, of Fort Sill and uh, hang out with me in Lawton, Oklahoma. But, uh, you know, as so I was living the bachelor life a little bit and, you know, I was like, well, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I already did all my homework for the day. So I'm going to go play golf. And this, this army thing, this is pretty nice, you know? And, um, but still can still, you know, decided to obviously where I'm at today, get out of the military. And so 
What, you know, you said you, you developed this knack and, and 9-11 played a significant role with that. And I could imagine had I been serving, in, uh, you know, during my time, if a significant event happened like that during my service, I definitely would have continued to pursue and, and protect this nation. So I didn't have that driving factor. But was there really anything else, you know, that you saw in the Marine Corps and you realized, hey, even even if I could go out and be successful in the civilian world, I this this being in the Marine Corps and, and, and leading Marines is something that I'm very passionate about and I want to continue to pursue until again, to your point, the Marine Corps um, says, thank you for your service and, and you get to, to pursue another career. Yeah, I was uh, being, being an instructor at, at the basic school when I was coming back from, uh, from my deployment right before that, that, uh, that billet, uh, the incoming commander was a, uh, Colonel John Allen, then Colonel John Allen, retired as four-star John Allen. And uh, he came out to the boat. I think he was the military secretary for the commandant at the time. And the commandant came out to see our boat because of some of the things we had done on float. And uh, they rode back with us uh, back into uh, the East Coast. So I got a chance to talk with Colonel Allen. And at that point, I didn't realize this, but he was kind of interviewing me for the job at, at the basic school. And... Uh, I was flattered when, uh, when right before he left, he said, hey, would you like to come and work for me at, at TBS? And I said, sir, I'd love to. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got back from the float. The monitor, the guy that gives us our orders or your detailer, uh, hadn't really given me any good options. So when I had a you know, by-name request from the incoming CO, I'm like, oh, I'm going to definitely take this. <laughs> um, and that was such a rewarding experience. It truly was. I mean, I... I still keep in touch with a number of my uh, former lieutenants uh, that I taught when I was either an instructor in the warfighting group uh, or as a staff platoon commander for the, the training companies that we're going through. And then when I transitioned across the street to the infantry officer course, uh, it was all just a, such a, a rewarding experience because you got a chance to directly impact and influence the next generation of, of junior officers that were coming in. And I mean, by no means was I was I old. I mean, I was a I was a mid captain, mid grade captain at that point. But um, it was just great. It was great working with them. And like I said, I still keep in touch with a number of them. In fact, one of them is now a colonel herself, and she's on the International Space Station as we're talking right now. Wow, and, uh, that's awesome. I mean, she, uh, Colonel Colonel Nicole Mann. Uh, she was a rock star at uh, at the basic school. And uh, I had a number. I had a number of rock stars that we trained going through that particular company. And I know they're they're like that in every school, in every service. Um, this wasn't unique to me, and it wasn't anything I did. It was just I happened to be associated with them, and they were fantastic. So that really developed my passion right there. And then while we were there, I was I was teaching mortars at the, uh, on the day of 9/11. I'll never forget it. We were in uh, LZ7 uh, doing the mortar mortar drills, mortar gun drills, and uh, we heard of the heard of the attacks. And then after that, you know, obviously all of us that were instructors wanted to get out to the the victor units that were going to be deploying. We assumed, and uh, it came soon enough, and uh, was able to get to a unit out on the west coast after that. And even though I wasn't very happy to be on a higher level staff. I was on the one mass staff initially for the planning phase. And even when we crossed the, the border for OIF, uh, it was still a, a great experience because I went from teaching all these, these young hard chargers 
uh, to actually now seeing them on the ground with their with their units. And then, uh, of course, I got a chance to, to do to, to command my own units uh, later on during OIF and then uh, into some later deployments during the surge period when I was with 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit as the Maritime Special Purpose Force Commander. So that was really kind of, I went from a great billet of, of training young officers and working with some of the best enlisted Marines because they had enlisted instructors there as well. And they were rock solid. And then going into uh, combat operations where I had a chance to command uh, up through really until I, until I was getting ready to pin on Lieutenant Colonel. So I had captain command time, major command time, which in the Marine Corps not always doesn't always happen because as you're, as a major, you may be in a B billet somewhere doing recruiting, commanding a recruiting station or something along those lines. So I was very fortunate that again, I was, uh, I got interviewed and by name selected by the incoming CO for the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, Colonel Greenwood to bring me over there to, uh, to serve with him. So at that point the, I, the, I had the bug. I wanted to continuously learn. There were things that we wanted to do uh, that were different, and you were still developing tactics as you were going into the insurgent portion of uh, of OIF, and how all that shook out, and how to do counterinsurgency. So it was constantly learning and trying to apply that in order to uh, to complete missions and just protect your protect your teams. Yeah, no, that I mean that's. <sighs> That sounds awesome. I, you know, at the end of the day, I think one of the deterring factors for me in the army, right, is the opposite of that, you know, coming into a, a, a military that really uh, there, you know, there were still some deployments to Syria, right? You got some deployments to where you would go in a holding pattern in Kuwait and, and you, you would go on some mission sets here and there, but there was, there was nothing that was really where you could go see and serve alongside, you know, people that, like you said, you got the opportunity to teach and, and, or, you know, just some of these very high speed units. Um, and you just get to watch masters of their craft uh, do what they're trained to do. And, and I actually have a, a, a pretty, pretty high affinity for the, for the Marines. I, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I was at Fort Sill for, for triple C, but as a, as a, uh, you know, second Lieutenant going through basic officer leader course, um, we, the field artillery school for, uh, the army and the Marines go through Fort Sill and, you know, they're held actually to a higher standard, right? I think on all their gunnery tests, they had to at least make it 80. And, uh, you know, us Army officers only had to, we could pass with a 70. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I made it my goal to not let them win. Um, I just see every Marine Corps officer as like, a, I don't know why I saw this, but I'm like, you are a Naval Academy grad and I need to beat you in everything that exists that we're going to we're going to be in competition for. So that was my mentality. The whole go Army beat Navy thing. Yeah, just yeah, it just plays a small factor in my life. Only every day, but um, yeah. So, but but to that point, I you just you, but it was really cool to go to a school alongside of them because obviously, and you understand this, and I only understand this a little bit as I continue to grow and and, and joint operations became more of a thing, and as you know, military grows and tactics change. It was, you know, you started to, you know, the Marines are kind of going back to their mission set and you really understand how adaptable Marines are with the small amount of tools that they're given, right? It's, you know, in the army, we have three different howitzers that we use 
and and the Marines, you guys are, you know, slinging that triple seven around and you, and you make it look really easy um, and very professional. And I always just, I always marveled, you know, watching the Marines operate um, with just the, the exceptional, um, you know, aptitude that they had when they were going through these training sessions. And so it was, it was always really cool to me to watch Marines and I can, you know, obviously hearing you speak about it and, and, and obviously you were on the infantry side, but, you know, leading those officers and, and Marines, um, in combat, I could only imagine would definitely be a driving factor to, you know, continue to persuade me to stay in, in the military and continue to, to, to serve alongside, uh, that caliber of person. One of the things that, that I enjoyed really about my, uh, the longevity of my career is all the folks I got a chance to, to work with and from across all the services, from across the interagency. So you're talking Department of State, USAID, CIA, uh, even Treasury and working uh, uh, with uh, some Secret Service folks doing uh, joint, joint task force type things. Uh, when I had battalion command, I had a, a radio battalion, which in the Marine Corps, is in communications, it's signals intelligence, electronic warfare. And at the time, it was the, the infant stages of cyber cyber operations as well. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't do, obviously, any, we would do protect, but we wouldn't do any offensive operations. But we could still do certain things that were like more along the lines of exploitation or uh, like cyber reconnaissance. And then we would hand it off to the, the higher echelon. But doing some of those things, and I wasn't I wasn't a a, a SME in the in, in uh, cyber intelligence or cyber uh, operations or signals intelligence. Uh, the only reason, from what I was told uh, by somebody that that would know that was on my command screening board, why I got that role is because uh, the senior officers that were on the board were mostly infantry officers, and they said, "Hey." Perry can either get reconnaissance battalion or radio battalion. Let's give him radio battalion because when he comes down and talks to us, you know, as regimental commanders or when, you know, we're, wherever we're at in country, he can dumb it down for us in order to kind of put it into, into grunt speak for us. And that was really what my role was as a battalion commander. I tried to take all the lessons that my smart folks taught me see uh talk about and think about ways to apply that to the the ground operations that were being conducted and if i could do that and then i could translate it and and get uh get them to buy in on the concept of operations that we're creating then my job was done and i felt i felt good for having done that but i wasn't the smart guy by any stretch on uh on the signals intelligence portion of that Uh, i had some phenomenal teams some phenomenal marines but also when we were deployed i had some phenomenal soldiers I had a few sailors as well that worked with us. Uh, I don't think I had any Air Force airmen during that deployment, but definitely uh, I had a mix from across all the services, and it was really a good team. And if you're if you're smart, uh, whether you're whether you're you know in a command position or you're just in whatever job you're doing in the military in the civilian world, take every opportunity you can to learn from anybody and everybody. Uh, that's the biggest thing that, I, that I've taken away. I'm still doing that to this day. Um, I was talking with one of my uh, with one of my sergeants today uh, for on the law enforcement side, and he was explaining something to me, and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. I didn't realize that, but that makes perfect sense. 
So every day should be a learning opportunity. And if you're not doing that, then you're, you're, you're missing the boat. Oh man, no, no pun intended there. But, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, that's, that's so true. And, you know, for the listeners out there again, uh, you know, obviously we generally talk about people getting out, but I do want to talk about, and I, you know, obviously as we kind of start to transition into, you know, Keith's transition out of the military and into the civilian world, um, you know, it, it is important to remember, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm actually working on right now is 10 things that I wish I would have known when I was getting out of the military. And I think, you know, there's this lie, especially today in social media presence and LinkedIn and Facebook and all this stuff where we see, you know, our peers or, or, or people that are a few years older than us that for me, like I had gone to the academy with them or for you, you had maybe they were a couple years ahead of you, something along those that along those lines. And we, and we, and we get this picture and we see these guys and they're in the civilian world and they're out there and they seem to be as though they are excelling now, just because again, right. The appearance is such, it doesn't mean that that is actually the case. And one of the lessons that I'm put that I'm going to put in that, in that, uh, ebook, and it's going to come out here in the near future is the grass isn't greener on the other side. It's just a different shade. And I think if in having that mentality, it helps paint a holistic picture at that point when you can transition out, when you can start to think about transitioning out of the military, because, you know, I think sometimes, especially at least in the army, right. It's you get, you get this narrow vision of, okay, there's only one set path, right. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a platoon leader and then I'm a battery company troop commander. And then, you know, I go serve my time on staff as a major and then I go become a battalion commander. And then I go, you know, if I excel in that, I become a brigade commander, so on and so forth. But to your point, it's, you know, as it, it, there could always be unconventional paths and you never know which way that either, either the military or the civilian world is going to take you. And then you need to have this mentality of learn something new every day. And that doesn't change whether you're in the military or in the civilian world. And really one thing, one of the rules that I live by in the civilian world, and I lived in, in the military world is this may sound bad, but always try to be the dumbest guy in the room. And I say that with a caveat of obviously get in a room where there are really smart people educate yourself, develop yourself until you become the smartest room, leave that room, go find another room and then become the dumbest guy in that room and continue to grow that way. And I think that hits to your point exactly to a T and, and you will be amazed as to the opportunities that are presented. It's like, to your point, I never thought in a million years I'd get picked for this battalion command position, but here I am because I just, I pushed, I pushed myself and I strive to continue to learn and grow every day. Yeah, I think Michael Dell is the one that, that coined that. Uh, if you're the smartest guy in the room, find yourself another room. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I just saw that quote the other day. That's so yeah. true. And I That's like so that. True. I like that quote. And, but uh, and, to your point about the different paths and the different routes, uh, that's one thing I would say to to the the uh, the younger officers that may be looking at this, uh, listening to this podcast. Don't be afraid to do that because you're right. There is a set path. You have platoon commander time, then you go company commander time, then you do, uh, you know, your your uh, career level school, then you go into a B billet, and then it just follows on. But there's different things that are out there. And when I was coming through, we were just standing up a uh, uh, they were they were revamping the intelligence 
roles within the Marine Corps, and they broke it into four uh, four different MOSs. You had ground intelligence, which led you to the reconnaissance community. You had signals intelligence, human intelligence, and air intelligence. And nobody knew how these things were going to shake out. I think my class may have been the second class coming out of TBS that had an option to, to apply for these particular MOSs. And I thought, well, I want to do the best of both worlds. If I, if I go ground, ground reconnaissance or ground intelligence and reconnaissance, I get to go through the infantry officer course. Then I go to uh, the – at the time, we didn't have our own school, so we went out to Fort Huachuca, and we went to your school for, for uh, uh, basic intelligence. And then you come back and you do a number of things. I ended up going to scout sniper school and doing some things like that. Um, so it was an interesting path. But I remember distinctly when I selected that, because all up to that point, I had chosen infantry, straight infantry all the way. And when I chose the ground intelligence, I remember my SPC, who was a great guy. All, all of our officers were, that, that, uh, were my instructors at TBS when I was a student. And uh, Nate Nastasi, who I still keep in touch with, a great guy, he's out in Hawaii. Uh, he said, what are you doing, man? Go infantry, because we don't know how this is going to shake out. I know you want to be high speed, low drag, but, you know, there's too many unknowns about this. And I said, well, I'm going to stick with it. And then uh, I did the same thing when, uh, I mean, and, and after that, I served in mostly infantry billets and, you know, moving into what would be the special operations community with the maritime special purpose force for the MUSOC. And then, uh, when I came back from my second deployment with the MSPF and 15th MU, I went over to, uh, to first Marine special operations battalion. Uh, now it's called first Raider battalion when we redesignated ourselves under the Raider moniker. But it was, uh, again, somebody said to me, like, don't do it. Don't redesignate as an 0370, which is special operations officer, because that's going to be a death knell. You know, you're, you're not going to get selected for colonel and you'll be forced out of the Marine Corps because it was something new, it was something different. And yeah, there were there were some growing pains. There were growing pains uh, for the entire command, for all of MARSOC, for all of the different units under MARSOC and for the personnel that were in there. Um, but like anything new, there's a time when. Uh, I don't care if it's an organization. I don't care if it's a machine. There's a time when something's new when it doesn't work. And you just keep tinkering with it until you get it to work. Uh, and that's exactly what we did with uh, with MARSOC. I mean, my my years there from 2007 to 2010, uh, we went through, I think, three reorganizations on how we were going to structure the, the, uh, the, the battalions, the companies, and the special operations teams. And it initially started off basically a mirror image of how the Maritime Special Purpose Force was set up, which was basically two platoons, and then you had attachments built around that, to what we eventually ended up with and that we still have within MARSOC, which is along the lines of the ODA model, yeah. uh, but much more beefed up. We love to task organize. We do it better than anybody else. So uh, a special operations company a raider, Marine Raider company right now goes out and they've got their, their special operations personnel, their critical skills operators and their special operations uh, officers. And then they have a, a whole contingent, which makes up approximately half the company of all of their uh, support. And when I say support, it's not, not a, not a derogatory term because they couldn't do the missions that they get assigned if they didn't have those folks, dog handlers, facts, 
their communications personnel, they had logistics personnel, they had uh, you name it and they had it. I can't remember all of them right now. They had human officers, uh, signals intelligence personnel, all sorts of intelligence analysts. I mean, it all comes together as a nice package. And I remember very clearly when I was at uh, at the Pentagon serving with uh, SOCOM in the Pentagon, uh, I believe it was Admiral McRaven said, uh, nobody else brings to the table what MARSOC brings to the table. I can bring a, I can, I can aggregate an entire Marine Special Operations company and they can fight almost in a conventional sense. And then when they get to wherever they need to get, they can disaggregate again into their special operations teams, into the team concept and do village stability and, and, and special operations in that capacity. And it's something that he's right. I mean, the, the, uh, special, special forces can't do it. The SEALs generally can't do it unless they get significantly beefed up. But we brought something unique to the table in that respect. And so it was worth the, the, the growing pains that we went through in order to kind of develop that and get to that point. Um, but I go back to my point that don't be afraid to do things outside the norm. Uh, regional affairs officers, RAOs, and foreign affairs officers, FAOs, for a long time, you know, in the Marine Corps, people said that that's, you know, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you go into one of those those uh, career fields. But we're finding out that you need to have those subject matter experts on a country or on a region, because if you move in there, especially if you're an expeditionary force moving into an area and you don't know anything about that area, you need people to fall back on and, and mm. kind of teach you and train you about that. So. Whatever it is, don't be afraid to go in that in that route. And if it, you know, if it leads to something uh, external to the military, that's good for you as well. If it, if it, you know, uh, I know I had some friends that did the fail rail route, and they they determined that they hey wanted to do some work overseas, and they got out and they picked up very lucrative careers overseas. That's just one example, but. The bottom line is don't be afraid to take some of those less traveled paths because mm -hmm. it could lead to some really, really unique and fun uh, uh, billets for you. And then you never know what it's going to lead to on the back end. Yeah, I, I honestly couldn't say that um, any better myself. And I think it's interesting, too, you know, it, no matter where you're at in the military, um, you have opportunities to take jobs. And I think you know, to, we, and one thing that I like to just educate people who are still in the military and they're, you know, looking for mentorship and, and, and in that retrospective, it's, it's like, to your point, Hey, go take whatever job you get. Right. Like I was talking to, to, to one of the guys that I work with, right. He was the battalion S4 and I feel like the battalion S4 in the army might almost be the worst job in the world. I mean, you know, you, you ask for everything, you get nothing, and, you know, you're, you know, it's like everybody blames you, even if it has nothing to do with you when you're in the field and doing operations. But the one thing that I reminded him, I said, you would have never got, you know, you were a field artillery officer, right? So besides obviously ordering, you know, moving around large ammunitions, right? As a platoon leader, you would have never gotten this, this supply chain logistical training had you not had that opportunity. And, you know, and, and if you think about it right now, it's like that's a that is a, a good billet on your um, 
OER and your, and your officer evaluation as you, and you grow in the Army. And it's also, especially in today's world, like what's the one of the biggest problems we have? Supply chain logistics. And now you come out and that job that you thought was a waste of time is now lucrative in both sets of the uh, sets of the hemisphere, if you will. And so that is exactly it. Don't waste any opportunity, no matter how you look at it. It's all going to it's all going to shape you in one way or another and just adapt and overcome and, you know, that kind of drives into now going into, okay, so you, you've gone through a lot of your career and I really appreciate you sharing all those examples. I mean, again, like I said, this, this podcast could go on for hours because I just, I personally would love to listen to it, but I do want to, to, to push into, you know, the transition. You also have a, a pretty crazy transition story, you know, obviously talking, talking to you previously and, and all the things that you undertook as you were getting out of the military um, and, and folks out there listening, um, just because they're senior officers doesn't mean it's any easier for them to get out. And, and Keith's about to share that for you. Um, right. Like you're like, Oh, we're, we're junior, you know, oh, they're senior officers, they're colonels. They're going to go pick up an executive job somewhere. No big deal. It's like no problem. And Keith's about to paint the picture for us a different way. So, uh, Keith, go ahead and just dive into, you know, where that transition kind of started out of the military and, and the, the events that unfolded therein. Well, Dan, one, one thing I want to bring up, I want to just circle back to one thing that you brought up. And it, it's a saying that we have in the Marine Corps, and it's probably not unique to our service, but bloom where you're planted. Mm. So if you get orders from your detailer, your monitor, and you're not happy with them, hey, that's why they're called orders and not desires. <laughs> you go there and you just bloom where you're planted. If you do a good job in a, in a, in a role that you didn't necessarily want and – you know, I had I had friends that did not want to go and do recruiting duty, uh, CEO of recruiting stations. Um, but to a man, all of them gained a tremendous amount, learned a whole lot about uh, themselves and how to lead organizations uh, by doing something like that. When I was a, a young, I think I was a first lieutenant. Uh, I had I, I was taken out of my uh, my platoon and I had to fill in as the S one in our battalion and. Uh, I didn't think I, I mean, I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have my office right next to the battalion commander's office for one thing. I don't want to do all this admin stuff. I don't really understand it myself, oh, man. but I learned to understand it. And I'll tell you what, it made me a better leader going forward because then I had an understanding of what it took to really do well and write fitness reports well, what it took to process awards for the Marines, what it took to do a number of things that you didn't, you know, if, if they have a pay issue, how do I figure that out? So that early experience really paid some dividends later on in my career. So bloom where you're planted. If you get something that you don't want, hey, suck it up, do well in it, and just know that on the back end, you're probably going to be rewarded by getting something that you do want for that next go round. But as far as the transition, yeah, it's uh, it was challenging and making the decision to do it uh, was probably the, the start of the entire thing. Uh, when do you make the decision to do that? And for me, um, it came down to, I've done everything that I really have wanted to do in the Marine Corps. And just because I, I came to that realization at 30 years, doesn't mean that other people won't come to that realization after their first hitch or when they reach the 10 year mark or something along those lines. Or heck, even when they when they hit uh, the 15 year mark, you're thinking, well, why would you get out of 15 when you've only got to say five more years for the uh, 
for the retirement benefits, but it's, it's an individual choice. And if you feel a calling or you have something that, that you really want to do, you know, no time like the present in order to do it. Uh, for me, what really kind of, and so remember, I, I wanted to stick around. I, I developed a passion for leading and I wanted to go and I served in combat a number of different times. I had uh, six combat deployments, uh, 55 months or so, just doing nothing but combat operations. And my body was starting to break down. I was getting all beat up. Uh, my knees were getting shot. I had uh, my shoulder reconstructed. I had a cadaver ligament put in my ankle. And I'm like, you know, it's harder and harder uh, every six months to pass this PFT and the combat fitness test. Um, you know, not that I let myself go to shit now. I mean, I try to stay in shape, but not like I was then. Yeah. So there was there was that aspect of it. But it was also, uh, I think I, I had a really, really good boss when I did my joint tour at SOCOM in the Pentagon. And I got there basically, uh, it was, it was, you know, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but, you know, the silver lining to what happened to me was I was at National War College and I got uh, orders to Tampa down to SOCOM down there. And I was going to work in one of the shops or perhaps... I was going to try to buy for uh, for a position on Admiral McRaven's CAG. And I got my orders on a Thursday. Friday, we went for a, a regular checkup. Um, my wife was pregnant with our twins, and we found out that she was in premature labor. So uh, that whole drama played out, and the kids came early. Uh, so I called the, the command down there, and I talked to the senior Marine, who at the time was a lieutenant general or a major general Laster. And I said, sir, Lieutenant Colonel Perry, I'm on your list of inbounds, but I'm going to have to ask to have my orders rescinded, and this is why. And he immediately uh, began taking care of me. He said, hey, take care of your family. I'll take care of you, and I'll handle your orders for you. Don't worry about it. Just take care of your family. And uh, I got a chance to go and work at the Pentagon then, which was a completely different realm. Mm-hmm. There you're, like, for the initial tour there, the initial – Six to eight months or so, I was working operational stuff with the joint staff, J3 and J5. But then I had the opportunity, and my name was put in the hat to work for the vice commander, who in in SOCOM handles all of the requirements, resourcing, budgeting, so on like that, and does that. And I had one of my mentors, uh, who's actually on the wall behind me in one of those pictures, a great guy. He was actually my commander with 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit. And he just is still to this day a, a great mentor to me. And uh, General Boudreau said, he goes, you need to get away from the operational side of things. You need to look at the business side of things of war fighting. And I said, well, that's that's my that's my concern. I don't know any, anything about it. And I don't want to punt it into the grandstands. He goes, you're not going to punt it. He goes, you're, you'll pick it up. And he was right. I learned a lot from General Trask, General Heidholt before him. And the, the other folks that worked at the SOCOM Washington office and, and really taught me what it was like to kind of look at the Pentagon and war fighting from a business perspective. And I got a chance to interact with some of the CEOs that were members of the Defense Business Board. And that kind of put the bug in me to, you know, I'd like to do this. I think I could do a good job taking some of my experiences that I had within the military and translating that to, to business but I knew I wasn't going to be ready to do it right off the bat. And so I started looking at uh, MBAs uh, and everything kind of pointed me. It was, it was fate, I guess. 
uh, karma that everything was kind of pointing me toward McCombs here in Austin at the University of Texas. And I ended up applying, got accepted. And then uh, for the last six months of my active duty time, I was still working at the Pentagon. I was in a different role. I was working for headquarters Marine Corps as the senior special operations officer inside the Pentagon to kind of coordinate things there. Uh, I had a small team that, that worked for me there. But I was commuting back and forth between D.C. and Austin. And so that was challenging because I've got, you know, school. One, I don't know if I'm smart enough to make it through this damn program that I got myself accepted to. So I'm like kind of stressing about that. I'm retiring from the Marine Corps. I am having to move. So I'm having to do you know all my move planning as well. And oh, by the way. Um, like I said, I had I had a number of things that were broken on me, so I'm trying to get those things repaired and documented as well. And quite honestly, I don't care if you're in for 30 years. I don't care if you're in for five, four years or five years. All these things are things that you're going to have to deal with when you decide to get out of the military. So for you know the the NCOs, staff NCOs, junior officers, same process that I went through, uh, having to worry about getting your orders. Having to worry about getting your medical records squared away because you do want to claim, you do want to put in a claim for VA disability. I don't care if you were in for four years, you need to do that because you don't want to leave money on the table for things that may have gotten broken while you're serving your country. And then uh, just, you know, figuring out where you're going to move to uh, and and what you're going to do when you get out. Uh, those are all daunting tasks, and it doesn't matter whether you're 30 years or four years or 10 years or anywhere in between. And that was challenging. Um, funny story, and and whether it's your orders, your military record, so getting your DD-214, because that's all based on your military record, or your medical records, okay? They say it when you're in the service. Nobody cares about your records like you do, and that's true when you're getting out as well. So you're going to have to do a lot of that, a lot of that work to get those things. And it is a daunting task. Now, at least everything's electronic. So you can go to any military treatment facility and say, find the records department, fill out a form and give it to the people there. And they'll put your medical records on a CD for you. Um, I'm sure they're still doing CDs. Maybe they'll get to a thumb drive or maybe they'll drop it somewhere in the future but right now it's still cds yeah i got my cd locked up in my in my safe that that thing's like gold to me yeah. um yeah so when you when you fill out that form ask for everything tell them you want your 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 uh all your treatment records all of your x-rays and other imagery that you had done your vaccination record uh you name it everything that you can think of that is medical related List it down there in whatever the big block is of, you know, what you're actually requesting. Because if you don't, and I learned this the hard way, if you say, I just want my military record, and you don't give them the specifics of what you're looking for, you're not going to get very much. They're going to do the bare bones minimum, and they'll give you, like, all of the stuff, all of the appointments that you went to, but that's it. I didn't have my, my, uh, my radiology reports on there, so all of my broken bones – all of my MRIs, all of that stuff, none of that was in there. So I'm like, okay, I have to be, I have to give them this in significant detail so that they give me what I want. And once I did that, everything was fine. But they default to the to the to the path of least resistance. 
So if you give them exactly what you're looking for, they'll follow it. And for those of you that are at or in the National Capital Region area uh, listening to this, go to Fort Belvoir. Go to the center of the complex, right below the pharmacies where the records room is, and they are phenomenal there. They were great. Walter Reed, not so much. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> oh, man. they—they, they, I, You know, Keith, that's such a great point because I think – Again, you kind of, as you are transitioning, a lot of people, and I know kind of the one thing that I fell for, I tried to do my due diligence as I was in the service. And every time I got hurt or something happened to me, I had, I printed out, you know, I built my I Love Me book and I had all my stuff in there. And every time I had, I made sure I walked out with some sort of record. So I at least had some, some paper copy, but that again, that comes to the, that a lot of this stuff happens towards the end of your, your time. And so, you know, in your brain, you're like, okay, tunnel vision. I just, you know, at this point I, I, I got a job. I want to get out of the military and I, you know, I just, okay. I get two D two fourteen medical records, et cetera. And to your point, it don't do not, do not, do not miss out on grabbing everything that you can, because what happens is, is when, you know, again, and you're, you might get into this or whatever, but when you go to apply for a VA disability, it, they do, it has to show service connectability and there has to be proof of it in the form of an MRI or a doctor's actual written action of what happened. Because if it does not, they'll look at it and they'll document it, but they're like, well, we can't tell if it was actually happened in service or this, that, or the other thing. And generally that it comes with the doctors in the army. Um, and, and, and to your point, if you don't have that, you could, I mean, you know, 10, 10% uh, for VA disability, depending on where you're at, like, you know, the difference between a hundred percent disabled and 90% disabled is roughly like 1200 bucks. So do not, again, miss out on that opportunity and do your due diligence and pay attention. So you're absolutely right on that. Um, and, and, and listen, I understand as a young officer and, and when I was enlisted, I didn't necessarily go to uh, sick call or to, to medical in order to get a lot of this stuff documented. And, but, you know, as I was getting more and more beat up uh, as I got older, I started getting this stuff documented and I can't stress that enough. You need to do that. It's not weakness. You're going to get yourself documented. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to be out for a long time. Uh, and, but if you're broken, get yourself fixed so that you can come back stronger. Because if you let a, if you let a, an injury linger, it's just going to get worse and worse. So there's that aspect of it. Then two is the documentation portion for when you do get out. So talking about the VA process, it's challenging. It definitely is. I highly recommend that you take an active role. So like what I did was I took all of my paper records because I was old enough that we still had a paper medical record. And then I went and I got the CDs and I printed out all that stuff and I put it into binders. And I went through it and I just made a laundry list, one to N of all the different things that I found in my medical record that were documented. And I just kind of put that together and I put that in the front pouch of one of the binders. And then I found what's called a veteran service organization uh, I used the one up at Walter Reed, and I think it was with the, through the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars. Somebody that does this for a living, like they know how the VA process works. They know how to submit the, the proper documentation. They know how to go through your medical record and find all this stuff. And he did. He went through each binder. I had three binders. He went through page by page. 
and he checked stuff off the list that I'd made up, and then he added some stuff that I had missed. So it, it was well worth it to go through that that individual. Um, for the most part, those those services are free. If you go through a lot of those services, now there are pay services out there as well. Uh, there are pay services, and those are not bad. I'm not saying they are, but if you have a free service and it's got a good recommendation, then utilize that. They go through. You can submit your VA claim six months before you're due to actually hit your EAS or your retirement date. Six months out. So I did that right at six months. I submitted it. I still had I still had a few appointments that I had to go to, uh, and I figured I could just submit those later on as supplemental claims uh, later on. So you've got your primary claim, your your main claim, and then you've got supplemental claims that you can do later on. So six months out. I didn't hear anything, and I, I heard stories about how the VA will—they'll get your—they'll get your record, they'll get your request for your uh, your dispensation uh, determination, and you won't hear from them again for a while. And it was—it was probably four months. It was a Friday. I had the movers, at, I had the packers at my house. And I was getting something cut off my arm that the thought may have been cancer up at Walter Reed when my wife calls me and says, hey, the VA just sent you a packet of stuff. It's about this thick. And uh, I opened it up and it's all of your appointments that you have to go to, but they're scheduled for next week in the D.C. area. And I'm like, oh, Lordy. So I'm like, bless their hearts. This is just not going to work. So I had to call them immediately and I said, hey, this isn't going to work. You need to reschedule all these things for Texas because I got my Packers there. My moving truck comes on Monday and my appointments start on Tuesday. I'll be on the road to Texas at that point in order to meet my moving truck. So know that they will blind schedule you. If you're going to stay in the area, no problem, no drama whatsoever. If you are moving, there's a chance that they could blind schedule you for a time when you're not going to be available. You need to immediately contact them because if you miss those appointments the following week, um, that's like a, a, it's a black mark against you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I called them up that day and I said, you need to reschedule these things. They did. Um, they didn't really follow all of my instructions. So I had a new packet of information that was sitting on my doorstep down here for five days without me being there. So thankfully it wasn't stolen, but that's another, that's another discussion. So I get my packet. I get, I go to all these appointments and I took all of my medical records. So all of my binders that I had, I had them in a, in a box and I had them in the back of my vehicle. And luckily I did that because as I was in there and I'm talking to the doctor on, you know, whatever problem I had. And, uh, he's like, okay, great. You know, I've got, I've got all my stuff documented, but I have to wait for the VA to send me your medical records. Cause I can't, I can't reconcile the two. I can't see if your medical record says what you're telling me it says. All I can write down is what you just told me. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And he's like, no, they didn't send me anything. I said, wait here. I run out to my car. I bring my big box in. I go, so you're, you, you need to see uh, when I had the cadaver ligament put in my ankle. Yeah, I need to see that. I flip to the page. I give it to him. He goes, can I make a copy of this? I'm like, absolutely. That was my first appointment. I'm like, okay, maybe this is just a, a maybe it's the first appointment, bad luck going on. Every single appointment that I went to, every single one, my hearing, uh, my my vertigo, everything that I went to, 
Nobody, the VA had sent them no supporting documentation. So when you do this and you have your supporting documentation, take it with you. Hopefully they've kind of ironed out some of the kinks uh, since I went through. I know they didn't for some of my friends, but have your documentation with you because that was the difference between my stuff getting done in a timely manner or hitting the uh, the COVID timeline when COVID kind of snuck in and they shut everything down. And then I'm waiting, you know, six months before I EAS all the way through the backlog of COVID. That didn't happen in my case because I had all my documentation. I was able to kind of give it to them, which allowed them to complete their processes. So just know that it's going to be challenging. And I highly recommend that people go on and you Google, I think it's called VA math. And yes. there's formulas yes. for how to calculate your your VA uh, disability plan. Yeah. So, like, if you get, if let's say something bad happened to you, and you get something that that they give you fifty percent disability for, you're like, all oh, right, I've only got another fifty percent to go before I'm a hundred percent. That's not VA math. VA math is like taking this piece of paper, and this is what you start with. So you start with this and you say, this is 100%. I have to get this. And you get a 50% claim. So you fold this in half. That's 50%. Now, in, in VA math, this becomes 100%. So if I get another 50% claim, you think, well, 50% plus 50% equals 100%. No. 50% folds that paper in half again. And now this is your 100%. So if I were to get another 50% claim, it would fold it in half again. But if I get a 10% claim, it only folds this tiny little corner up here mm -hmm. like that. So the VA math is really complicated. That's kind of a good example if you're talking and you keep getting 50% claims. But if you get a 40% claim or a 10% claim or a 5% claim, uh, this example that I gave on this sheet of paper doesn't really hold fast. It's challenging. So Google VA math to figure out how you're going to do things and, and how you think some of these things may shake out. But the bottom line is submit for everything, everything, yeah. everything, because even if you have a condition that requires you to take medication for the rest of your life, do you want to pay for that for the rest of your life? Or do you want the VA to send it to you every 30 days? Yeah. I, I guarantee you want the latter. Yeah, that that's the truth. And, 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 you know, one thing that I did, obviously, having the CD, I remember I burned like, gosh, four or five copies of my medical records. And every time I went to, you know, an appointment, I said, hey, this is my medical records. And I just handed it to them. And I had watched them put it in the folder and hand it to the doctor. At that point, there's, a, there's another website out there. I think it's like military disability or something like that. But it's a, it's another website. Now, it's one of those paid websites you go to. I think it's like 10 bucks a month. Um, but I think the first month's free. And so what I did is I actually went on there for the first month and I walked through, they actually have on there the book of essentially what the nurse practitioner, the doctor that's examining whatever you documented on your report to get looked at, it walks you through, Hey, you know, uh, doctors aren't allowed to do this, that, and the other thing. And so, you know, I, I think we talked about this on the phone. It's like, if you're, if you are right as like, officers and the army you're just like hey just push through the pain push through the pain no that they tell you it's like as soon as the pain you as soon as you start to feel any pain stop whatever you're doing and that's the te that's technically where the the disability starts and so there's so many tips and tricks out there that 
you know, j- just do your due diligence on that. Because again, that for, for some people, again, if, if you are, I guess, unfortunate, but fortunate enough to receive 100% disability, that is ultimately a life changer. And again, to, to your point, Keith, that's just, it's not necessarily there as extra income, but it now anything, like if you have to go to the chiropractor monthly, it covers all that stuff, right? You don't have to pull it out of pocket. That's not something that you have to work, worry about fiscally as you pursue a career. And, and the, what you're talking about, and I forget what they're called. I think they're called CFRs. Yeah. But if you go to va.gov for anything, any condition that you can think of, they got them broken out by like, uh, muscular, you know, muscular, skeletal, mm-hmm. endocrine, neurological, uh, orthopedic, etc. And you go in there and you can pull down exactly the, uh, we'll call it the test. You can pull down the test that the VA doctor is going to give you when they're validating your military medical records. And you're going to see exactly, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not classified documents. It's out there. VA.gov. Um, I think they're called CFRs, but look there. So you, if you know you've got to go for uh, an appointment to an ortho, orthopedic specialist, pull down the ortho, orthopedic CFR and see exactly what they're going to ask you. That way you can kind of say, okay, I know what they're going to ask me. This is how I'm going to answer it. So all that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, all right. Yeah. So we got cover, cover the VA. I think that's, you know, for <clears throat> a lot of people out there, again, do, do not, do not overlook any, that's again, that's such a huge laborious process um, and make it easier because quite frankly, the hardest part is to your point, Keith, is getting those appointments. Once you get the appointments and you, and if you are, again, you were smart enough to hand the doctors your records and you had all those on file and you, and you did your pre-planning, the, the doctors turn it around really quickly. And then once the doctors turn it around, it's, I mean, it's like a couple of weeks, if not a month, you have your rating there and you're, and you, depending on when you get out, you're, you're receiving your, your, whatever you get with your rating. So, yeah. I'll say the last thing we'll say on this, and I'm, I'm I'm glad we, we hit this early because I think this is one of the most important aspects because one, it's your health and mm-hmm. two, it's, it's potentially financial resources that you can, that you can get for the rest of your life. But the last thing I'll say on that is if you, uh, once you get your rating, once you get your rating and you know where you're going to be, uh, talk to the, uh, like ours here in, in Texas where we're at in central Texas is up in temple, temple, Texas. And that's the main hub. And so if, if uh, that's a little bit far, far from me, I mean, I could make it if I needed to, but we've got, we've got a clinic in Austin. So I contacted them because they just default to wherever they think they, they, you want to go. It could be Temple. It could be Cedar Park. But I prefer to go to the one in Austin. Um, so I had to call them. And you're allowed to do that. Don't think that just because they tell you that you need to go to you know, city A, but you want to go to city B because it's a little bit closer or you've got family in city B. And if you have an appointment, you can go and spend time with your sister down there. Do that. You're in charge of your medical uh, treatment. Tell them. And I just called them up and I said, Hey, you got me scheduled for Cedar park and going to temple. I said, I'd rather just go to the one in Austin. Can we make that switch? And they said, yeah, we can do that. But when you do that, do it early because that way you don't have to switch all of your doctors as well. So uh, I was able to get my, my primary care physician and, and, you know, other specialists that I needed all set up at Austin. Uh, and it's completely that's that's on you. You're allowed to do that. 
Don't let anybody tell you that you're not allowed to do it. It may be a little bit more work on the VA's part, but it, you're totally within your rights to do that. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think uh, that's definitely an overlooked thing too. I think, you know, for me, it's like, uh, you know, t- I, I'm kind of, <clears throat> I'm up in Georgetown, so I'm a little more central to all those things. So really, depending on traffic, they're all kind of uh, roughly the same time uh, to get there. So, but no, that's, that's such a great point. <clears throat> Um, yeah, so I think let you know, let's dive dive back in, right? So you you um you were kind of talking about you know the the transition and and, and moving from DC down to Austin, covering the VA, but the main reason why you're moving down to Austin is right is to pursue the MBA program at McCombs Business School at, at the University of Texas. Um, and I think you know a, a lot of people. One thing that I talk about. So I didn't pursue an MBA when I got out of the military. Um, obviously, I, I kind of wanted to go a little bit more of the entrepreneur route. I, I'm a big fan of the Elon Musk method of kind of trial by error. Um, and you know, I have so I school of hard knocks, if you will. Um, and, and so I decided to pursue a career in the, in the startup world. And, and to your point, Keith, that to me is almost, it sounds like your position in the Pentagon. I'm just, because I'm in such a small organization, I was thrusted into all of these things of trying to figure out how businesses operate. Um, and, but, you know, pursuing an MBA post military is, is something that a lot of people do. So I'm definitely interested to talk, you know, hear about, how that went for you and and how that affected kind of the rest of your journey as you transition out of the military and into the civilian world. <clears throat> my, my, uh, my decision to, uh, to apply to McCombs was, uh, the third best decision that I made. First one was to join the Marine Corps. Second one was to uh, marry my wife. And the third one was to uh, join McCombs. And I had only applied to McCombs. So when I went through the application process, uh, I couldn't make it down to Texas because I was still in the Pentagon and I was still doing some travel out of the Pentagon, even in my final role uh, to various places across the globe. And I said to him, I can't make it down there. I understand that you normally like to have applicants come down and meet some of the faculty and whatnot. But and I said, I, I can't make it happen right now. But if I, you know, if I when I can, I will be down there. So they brought the, uh, the mountain to Muhammad. So they were coming to DC for a recruiting trip. And, uh, I had already, I had asked for special permission to submit my application early because I was having to make some travel during the first, uh, submission period for the first tranche. And they said, yeah, you can do that. So I submitted it like way, way early. And then, uh, they came to DC and the gal that I was meeting with, uh, said, Hey, uh, congratulations. You made it past the, uh, the, the initial two rounds in the application. You're at the interview stage right now. Do you want to just knock that out today? And I said, yeah, let's do it. And she said, are you sure? Normally people get a little nervous to do their interview. And I said, if, if I can't talk about myself and my career and what I want to do moving forward, then I don't deserve to be going to your program anyway. So we'll just call <laughs> it good at that point. She kind of laughed. And so we had the interview that day and it went very well. The, uh, the one thing that, that I'll, I'll bring up, which don't let anybody be intimidated by this either. Uh, Sharon kept bringing up in a number of different contexts during the conversation. Well, at McCombs and at University of Texas, we consider ourselves very diverse, very inclusive, you know, intellectual diversity. And I said, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And finally, the third or fourth time that she brought it up, I said, I said, let me shoot the elephant in the room. I said, 
Marine Colonel coming up on 30 years in the, in the military by the time I retire. Uh, you're concerned that I've been institutionalized and I won't be a good fit for this inclusivity and diversity. I said, let me, let me try to slay that. I said, I worked with people from across the demographic spectrum. I have friends from across the demographic spectrum. You name it, and I've got friends that, that fit into a particular category, so to speak. I've worked with foreign governments, foreign militaries, worked with foreign civilian populations. I said, I enjoy learning from people across all walks of life. And I said, that's what I want to get when I come to your school. So the fact that you're telling me that that's the way it is, is really good to hear. And uh, at that point, I think the interview was over. She said, that sounds great. I was going to grab a glass of wine. Do you want one? I'm like, yeah, great. So interview over. And then fast forward to, oh my goodness, 2018, about a couple of days from now, it was on Halloween night. This same woman called me up and she said, hey, congratulations. You're the first admit for the uh, class of 2021. I said, oh, thank you so much. And I'm so glad it was you that called. So don't let, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. When I say learn from everybody, develop relationships, uh, try to purge yourself of bias. And I know that, you know, we're human beings. We all have, we all have bias of one form or another. Uh, mine right now kind of lean toward people that go to Texas A&M. Just kidding. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I have plenty of friends that go to Texas A&M and I don't know how many times I give them a hard time. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. You, you know, you guys talk about the fake core, the fake 12th man. I even found out the other day that their, uh, their cadet motto, right. For the core cadets is a, uh, a cadet will not, or an Aggie will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And I said, that's eerily similar and by eerily an exact replica of the West Point cadet motto that we that we stick to and sign our name to when we do assignments at, at West Point. And so I always give them a hard time and all those Aggies out there listening. It's all good yeah. fun. We love you guys, but it's OK. You guys try hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, build those relationships, learn from everybody you can, because if anybody says to you like, well, you know, you went to West Point or you went to Annapolis, you went to the Air Force Academy or you, you know, were in the military. And quite honestly, there are people that, that don't understand the military and they sometimes have a stereotyped opinion of what they think the military is or uh, whether it's, you know, you're enlisted, you're an officer. Maybe it was the job that you did in the military. Um, you need to dispel those. And you can. You easily can because – the, the, the education, uh, both formal education and informal education you get in the military is going to serve you very, very well because the, the, the military is a microcosm of society. Mm -hmm. So learn from everybody that you can uh, across the, you know, when you get into your units or while you're in your units, uh, learn from everybody you can so that you can dispel those kind of stereotypes that people may have as you're coming out and you're doing your transition. And, uh, I mean, you, a point that you brought up is, you know, everybody thinks, oh, he's a colonel. He's going to have it easy when he gets out. Um, I thought the same thing about general officers until I heard General or I'm sorry, Admiral McRaven speak uh, about that very phenomenon. He goes, it's very hard because a lot of companies don't want to take a chance on a guy that's coming out of a, a long career in the military. I mean, you know. 
best case scenario, when I when I started looking coming out, I was gonna have unless I wanted to work till I was like, you know, uh, you know, into my 70s, I was gonna have 15 good years of working in a second career for a company. And hopefully that would be the same company. But in today's job market, that's not always the case. So mm-hmm. there is some age discrimination that goes on uh, at the senior ranks. And that's, that's you know, apparently a fact. I mean, I, I experienced it a little bit, but even Admiral McRaven said that that is something that, that does happen. Now, if you're very senior, if you're a four-star or a three-star, you're probably going to be on numerous boards and so on. Mm-hmm. But there, there, are, there are challenges out there, and I guess that's the best way to say it. There are challenges no matter what rank you are when you get out. Senior folks and the junior folks as well. Um, the best thing I can say is you're not going to find – it's highly unlikely. Less likely you're going to find a job going on to uh, just a job board. Yeah. Where are you going to find your jobs and where are you going to find your opportunities? And that's both for learning and also for your next career. It's just by networking. Mm. Going to everything and everything that you can. Um, here in Austin – You've got uh, the Capital Factory. They've got a number of events that they put on that are free. You can go there. One, you're going to learn something. Two, you're going to be able to network and meet people. And it's those people that if they get a chance to know you and like you, will point you in the right direction. There's, uh, there's a number of things that they do online, and now they're coming out from online. So there's the uh, – uh, oh, I forget some of the groups that I'm in. Yeah. Um, there, but I mean, all those kind of things as much as you can. If you meet somebody and they say, oh, I'm a member of the uh, this particular group. Well, how often do they meet? Would I be able to get an invitation to that? I'd like to listen and hear what they say. And that's how you're going to meet people. And then do your follow ups. Make sure you mm-hmm. get the contact information and make sure you do a follow up, uh, whether it's via LinkedIn, whether it's via an email or, or whatever, uh, just to kind of make yourself memorable. And so that they can reach out to you if they see if they hear of anything that may come up that may be interesting, both for you and for them. Yeah, that's that that's uh, you know networking is 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 a common theme you know on the podcast, especially for people looking to transition out of the military. And I and I, I say this before I dive into you know continue to talk about networking. You can never start too early for networking. You can never start too early. It that it you know again it. Both if you stay in the military or if you get out, you never know those friendships that you make both near and far down the road, how those pan out. And then also, you know, Keith, to your point of just bringing up this thing of most often you don't ever get a job offer from somebody that you met person to person. It's you leave a lasting impression on that person by, you know, obviously introducing yourself in a humble manner saying like, hey, I'm just thank you for having me here. Like I just love the career field that you're in. If there's any opportunity that I can pursue to do X, Y, and Z, I'd love to be a part of it. And generally what happens is, is you leave that impression on that guy. And then he reaches out to his buddy who posted as an open rec. And he says, Hey, I got a, I got a guy for you. I can't give him an, we don't have any open recs at our company, but there's an open, you know, he would be a perfect fit for this particular position. And, you know, again, and that, and that just comes from in networking and it, and it, to your to your point exactly, when you're networking, I've I've seen it too many times, and you know, quite honestly, I kind of fell for this trap. I didn't I didn't pers- I didn't you know 
put myself out there in this way, but mentally I thought to myself, I'm a West pointer. I'm an army officer. I played football at the Academy. Somebody, somebody wants to hire me. Some, somebody wants me to work for their company. And and quite frankly, that's just not true. You know, at, at the end of the day, yes, as, as officers, uh, both junior and senior, right. We, we have a particular set of skills that set us apart these soft skills of of leadership under pressure and how to build communities and how to build teams and how to lead organizations through stressful times but you will never let those opportunities shine if you do not humble yourself enough to you know get into talking to somebody and say hey i just want to be a part of this organization and then once you get into that organization or you're offered an opportunity to just continue to be around that organization people pick up on oh you know, th- this guy coming from the military, uh, to your point, isn't what we thought. You know, I think a lot of people look at veterans coming into the company. You know, here comes a guy who's right. We're, we got P- PTSD. We're going to freak out on somebody. We're not cultured. Uh, you know, we're, we're biased on these things. You know, this, that, and the other thing. We won't fit into culture. And the fact of the matter is, is that's generally not even remotely true. We're just guys that want to come in. And it's it's just like, I mean, to your point, as a platoon leader, I had, again, I had, I led an individual from almost every walk of life that I could think of that's out there right now. And it, it doesn't matter, right? At the end of the day, the, the mentality that as a senior non-commissioned officer, a soldier, a Marine, anybody that's in the military brings to the table is it doesn't matter. We work as a team to survive. At the end of the day, that's what we do. We work as it doesn't matter what the background is. The goal is to bring the team home. And so that's the mentality that I've been trying to paint out there. And one of my mission sets at Five and Fly is to hot is to educate small, medium, and large companies more about veterans uh, of all walks of life, and saying like, "Hey, this is the picture that you guys think they are painting for us, and this is the actual picture." And helping them realize like, "Oh, oh yeah, th- th- these veteran guys are, are and girls are, are somebody that we want to be on this team because we bring a different outlook and this ability." to, um, to, to mold and, 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 you know, come together. So networking is just, yeah, we can just keep going on that because I think it's just such, such an important topic in, in the, in the separation out of the military. It is. <laughs> and also it allows you to pay forward too, because not only are you going to, it's, it's a two way street. You're not just trying to get something from somebody you're going to be, you're giving into that relationship as well. And, you know, I, I can't tell you since I've been down here, some of the folks that I've met, we've just become really good friends. I don't think I'm going to necessarily ever work with them or work for their particular company, but it's nice because now they can refer people to me and I can help folks out as well. So I like doing that. And that's one of the things that I like to do with the honor foundation as well, which is the soft transition program. Uh, that is a, it's a three month program that they put on and I'm, I'm here in central Texas in Austin area and I've helped a number of folks that decided they were going to get out. They've gone through the Honor Foundation Fellowship Program. They're coming to Central Texas, and the the folks that are at the campuses with uh, THF refer them to me. I've helped some folks uh, apply for and, uh, and thankfully get accepted to McCombs for various uh, MBA programs and, and other uh, programs within the school. So as an alumni, you know, uh, doing a letter of recommendation for these folks that are coming in. I'm I'm happy to do it. And that's one of the things that, again, it's all about the relationships. The the one thing that I want to bring up, and I didn't get a chance to use it, but I do want to, I do want to at least throw it out there. So people at least have heard it. The skill bridge program that's out there. Uh, 
tremendous program. You get an internship if your command approves it for like six months, the last six months of on, on active duty. And there's no guarantee that the company that you do an internship with is going to hire you on at the end of it. But there's a better than, you know, let's put it this way. If you don't do it, you're definitely not going to get asked. But if you do it, I've had a number of friends, both officer and enlisted, that have done this program. And every single one of the folks that I know at least got an offer to stay with that company that they did the internship with. Some of them didn't take it because they wanted to go to a different location, a different city or whatnot, where they did this company didn't have offices. So that was a mutual decision. But it's a great program, well worth taking a look at, called Skills Bridge. And it's a, it's a way to kind of get some on-the-job training in the corporate world, in the financial sector, in the energy industry, you name it. They've got companies that are in that particular space, and you can apply for internships with them. So definitely take a look at that. And I didn't do it. Uh, I, I thought about it, but I didn't do it because the last six months I was commuting back and forth to, to Austin. So I figured doing skill bridge and my MBA and trying to get out of the Marine Corps would have been a bridge too far. No pun intended. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I actually am a product of the skill bridge program. So, um, I, Good. you know, I networked and I, uh, interned for a company, uh, the company that I now actually work at. Uh, and you know, I got into the company, they were a small company, uh, I think there were at a company of 20 people, um, but they're looking and, and obviously we're still looking to get into just it's, it's artificial intelligence company. Um, and my last job was working at the division level for a Devardi. And, you know, so we did we did war fighters and things of that nature. And there were so many things that we were doing in, you know, the talks and the things of that nature where I just was looking at it. And all I could think about is like, man, artificial intelligence would make this so much more effective there we are there's we are doing a manual process that could be done by a computer and allow the warfighter to go do other things that are more important or allow them to plan in tan in parallel with what's going on in the computer and the things that you know whatever's going on that we're tracking or we're looking at and you know obviously this opportunity came up and i was there i went uh, january 1 to basically the middle of may um, I actually did not, the company wanted to hire me. I proved myself to like, we, Hey, we want to bring you on board. We're a small company. We don't have the revenue to support it yet. And we need to make some other hires. They're looking to hire a CFO and some other sales support teams roles like that. But the guy, my direct manager during the internship said, Hey, keep in touch with me. Like let's have monthly biweekly touch points. We want to hire you. If anything comes up, we'll see if we can scramble the jets to maybe make something happen and bring you on the team. If you listen to my first episode, go back to the episode one of the pilot. Uh, I'll tell you that I'll fill in the story. You know, that fills in all the stuff that happened in between. But eventually, four months down the road, I finally got hired. Um, in the middle of that, I, I had, you know, some some leave time saved up. So I was still getting paid in the interim. And um, it allowed me to take some good R&R. Um, my wife and I and kid, our six-month-old at the time, we went out to Alaska and hiked Denali and not actually summited Denali, but we were in the national park. And just went through Alaska and that was a great time to really help me refresh my mind and get adjusted. But all that being said, I did end up landing a job at, uh, the company I work for now world's enterprise. Um, and you know, it, to your point, Keith, it, it is such a great program. And the more and more I talk to people, right. You can either do the career skills bro uh, bridge, uh, the CSP program, 
Um, it, it kind of falls into s- several different things. Another one is hiring our heroes. And to your, you know, you're saying that the careers, the, the skill bridge program, which is kind of more, I call it the DIY route, right? You got to go network and, and get a job with some of these companies. The hiring our heroes route is a little bit more uh, of, of a sure shot. Some people still don't land the jobs, but it's, it's, you know, some people they're like, Hey, I want to go work for these major companies. But if you, if you want to go just get experience and still be able to network and to, to your point, Hey, I don't, you know, I live in, I knew I wanted to stay in Austin in Georgetown. So I was looking for a job inside Austin. Um, but if you know, you want to move or you're looking for a specific thing, you can do the skill bridge, Again, gain those skills through the internship, get certifications. There's so many free certifications out there. You can go get the pursuit. You could go get a PMP, you get a Six Sigma, all these certifications that are out there for free. So you can do that while you're doing the skill bridge program. And then you can continue, and then you can network on the side. And, you know, again, the company might offer you a job, they might not, but during that time, you're again you're building your skills up. So when you come out, you say, Hey, look, I have all these certifications. I have the skills, you understand the language, you know how to then be competitive in interviews, so on and so forth. But yeah, that was a great point. And to your point about those certifications that are out there, and they are out there. I mean, I think a University of Syracuse puts yes. on the PMP program. Mm-hmm. And it's not just for the military members, it's for the military spouses as well. Yes. So, you know, guys and gals that are listening to this, it's for you and your spouse. So take advantage of that. And there's just other things that are that are out there. Uh, learning learning lessons that you can get on LinkedIn or some of the other platforms that are out there. If you don't understand something, there's I guarantee there's some place out there on the internet that you can find that can that can teach you about it. Like when I started, I knew I was going to have to use a lot of Excel, and I wasn't exactly an Excel guru. So <laughs> I went out and uh, I forget where I found it, but I found an Excel course that taught me everything I would need to know in order to use Excel for my statistics class. And thank God I did, because if I had gone into that statistics class not knowing how to use Excel, I would have been done, done, completely done. So utilize those things. I mean, instead of, you know, have fun, but use utilize your time to get some of this stuff knocked out before you make your transition. That way you're not like, oh, shoot, I wish I would have done this five months ago. It would have really helped me in my application because I could have put that down here and it would have applied specifically to this job that I'm looking at and that I really want. So try not to put yourself in that position and do that kind of stuff ahead of time because it's all out there and a lot of it's free. Yeah. Pain, pain, pain of discipline versus the pain of regret. As always, yeah. is the, there's always the ultimatum there. Hey, Dan, the, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with and we can, we can wrap up is just orders. Your orders, whether you're, 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 you're EASing or you're retiring, make sure your orders are right. And don't let the staff sergeant or the warrant officer or the major, whoever it is, come out to the counter when you're at the at, when you're at your S1 or your consolidated admin shop and bully you into taking whatever they have written down on your orders or whatever they have written down on your DD-214. I went back, oh my goodness, half a dozen times at least for them to get stuff right that was that, that I knew was in my in my record on my DD-214. And a lot of times you're, like I said before, nobody cares about your record like you do. And I had to go down to Quantico, Virginia and submit things that were not in my record, like my jump wings or awards that I had that just weren't, that, that somehow never made it in there. So I had to take care of that myself. And, and 
Until I did that, I knew my DD214 wasn't going to be correct. So make sure all that stuff is done. And if you're if you're getting pushback from the admin folks, because they're busy, they, they may not be doing it maliciously. They just may be busy. But if you're getting pushback, go to your platoon sergeant, go to your platoon commander, go to your company commander, your company first sergeant, whoever you need to, and say, hey, I'm getting ready to get out of here, and I'm getting some, some pushback from admin to get this stuff corrected. And if you got a good chain of command, they're going to help you out, and they're going to take care of you to do that. But don't walk out the door because, like, you know, when I, when I picked up my orders my last day, uh, Lance Corporal came, said, here you go, sir, read through them one more time. Good to go. And then uh, don't let the doorknob hit you in the ass on the way out. So there was no fanfare. It's just you you pick up your, your pieces of paper, your DD-214 and your, your exit orders, and uh, that's it. You're gone. Bye. And at that point, they don't care who you are. You're just some guy that was here to pick up some paperwork, and you're out the door. At that point, it's too late. Yep. That point's yep. too late. So don't get to that point. Don't get home and then read through yours and be like, oh, that's not right. That's not right. And that's not right. Well, at that point, they don't care. They no. truly don't care. That's, I think that's such an important point that I think people get looked, you know, look over to, to as well. Um, they, you know, I, I, the way I like, the way I thought about it, right, is, is, is treat it like you're sitting down for a promotion. I mean, you know, even though a, a first lieutenant to captain is pretty much guaranteed, right? I still went over my ORB at least, you know, three dozen times. I think I ended up taking two photos, right, to make sure that that thing was crisp and precise and looked good, had everything documented, everything ready to roll. Same thing, treat it like it's a promotion. Well, Keith, I really, really appreciate you hopping on the podcast and, and talking with me this evening. Um, you know, I know it's cutting into to, to some personal time, and, and this is just I I uh, just know that I cherish every opportunity I get to speak um, to people that transition out of the military and into the civilian world, um, and just and be able to not. I, I love getting the wisdom and part on me, but then obviously putting it out there for the public to listen to. One thing that I always like to do when I land the plane on the podcast is, is a question I ask, um, and it's a question I ask myself um, and that I tell people when they ask me when they ask me this question, but I'll ask you this question, and um, if, if you could go back and do it all over again, what is one thing you would do that you feel would set you up for success knowing what you know now after getting out of the military? Are you talking like full career or are you talking about the transition piece of it? Uh, honestly, I'm going to leave that up to you to answer one way or another, which one, you know, you can, or you can answer both. Uh, but I'll leave that up to you. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I don't have any regrets on, on anything regarding my career. It was, it was completely rewarding and worthwhile. Now I say that with the caveat that like, you know, Marines and friends that I've lost and those that have been injured, you know, in, during our combat deployments, obviously you don't want that. But at the same time, I don't think there was anything that I could have done differently that would have changed the outcome, perhaps. We trained hard. We fought hard together. And unfortunate things happened. Mm. Uh, so, but as far as the, uh, the transition itself, I think that the, the one thing that I think I would have uh, put more thought into uh, as I was getting ready to leave was – something that, that Simon Sinek calls uh, 
determining what your why is. What's your purpose in life? Mm. What is going to be your purpose that you want to do when you get out? I thought about all of these uh, mechanical things, my medical record, my, my, my orders, my move paperwork, you know, packing my house, things like that, getting, applying for and getting into a business school. Um, but I really didn't think about what my why is. Mm. And I, I determined that when I went through the honor foundation program and it really didn't change a lot from, from what I was doing when I was in the military and it's, and, and my why, my purpose that I determined after a lot of self-reflection, excuse me, self-reflection and talking with folks is to lead, mentor, and support my teams so that we collectively and collaboratively achieve any mission and exceed expectations. And that's really what I tried to set myself up for and tried to, how I tried to support my, my, my personnel and my teams when I was in the military. And that's what I'm trying to do right now in my current role, uh, because I'm not the subject matter expert on, on law enforcement or on critical infrastructure protection or on insurance programs. I have, I have really, really smart folks that do that for LCRA right now, Lower Colorado River Authority. But what I try to do is I try to support them. I try to listen. I listen to them. They teach me. And I try to set myself up to support them as best I can so that they can use their subject matter expertise to do what they need to do. And I think that it took me a while, even while I was in the, in the MBA program, to determine exactly what I wanted to do when I got out, to mm. determine what purpose I wanted to serve in the mm. civilian community and in the corporate world. And it was, if I had done that a little bit sooner, I think it would have made my transition go a lot, lot easier. So mm. that's one thing I think that everybody needs to think about. What do you want to do? What purpose do you want to serve? Uh, and what do you want to do? Like you, you mentioned about the entrepreneur route. That's perfect. You, you're, you're ahead of me when it comes to that. You thought about that. You knew what direction you wanted to go. I didn't have that kind of direction. I was kind of, well, I'll figure it out as I go through my MBA program. That, that was the wrong answer. That's the one thing that I would go back and change. Man, that, that is such a great question to ask yourself. And I love that personal mission statement that you made for yourself, something that you can look at every day, um, you know, not to end on a somber note, but I mean, that's such a great thing to ask yourself, right? There's still 22 veteran suicide deaths a day, right? And it's probably because when people got out of the military, they didn't ask that question or they were forced out of the military one way or another. And they were trying to figure out the answer to that question. So Honestly, that might be might be the new question uh, that I asked at the end of the podcast. I think that's a great question to ask yourself. Well, uh, Keith, again, thank you so much for just imparting the wisdom on me and to the listeners out there. Um, to all you guys listening, I always like to lead, end off the episode with go to, go to fiveandfly.com, take that survey uh, and, and fill out those questions and, and then schedule one-on-one with me. I'd love to sit down and talk with you and help point you on the right azimuth as you look to ch- uh, separate out of the military and, and into the civilian world. Um, looking forward to these next upcoming episodes. Uh, we're going to continue to have more guests on uh, and just hear more stories. And then uh, once we hit episode 10, we're going to start a new series. And Keith kind of touched on it with having uh, free certification for spouses. But uh, the new series is going to be along the lines of how the separating of the military affects spouses. 
um, because the, you know, that is a very important role in it and they are affected just as much as you are. And for most people, they are your rock while you're in the military. Um, and so make sure that you're paying attention to them when you get out. But again, Keith, thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation and remember guys, it will buff. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the it'll buff podcast i hope you enjoyed that conversation i really enjoy having them here's the thing if you like that episode please do a few things to help me out one go save this podcast put it in your library i'm going to be releasing one episode a week every week here on forward the next thing is go to the five and and take the survey It'd be really helpful for you to take this survey to help paint a picture of where each member that is separating from the military that's interested in this community is at. There's all kinds of questions, things that I've covered from previous episodes, so please go take this survey. Third, please go schedule one-on-one on the website. I'd love to talk to you and hear where you're at in your transition journey and help at least put you on the right azimuth and potentially work with you for the, for the future to come. Lastly, If you or somebody you know has a separation story that you would like this community to hear, please reach out to me so we can schedule that story and I'd love to have you on the podcast. Again, this is a community by you guys for the people that are coming behind us. The goal is to make each person that comes behind us as they separate from the army have a more successful path than we did. That's the goal. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed and remember, it'll buff.